The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Seoul, the growing centre for contemporary art. We talk to a curator and gallerists about the Korean scene. Plus, a horsehair basket by Daya Jong, winner of the Lueve Foundation Craft Prize. On Wednesday, Freeze announced the details of the first edition of its art fair in Seoul, South Korea. So for this last episode of the current season, we're exploring the art scene and market in the Korean capital. I talked to the art historian and curator Jiun Lee about contemporary art in Seoul and beyond. Our associate editor, Kabir Jalla, speaks to two gallerists, Juri Kwan, deputy director at the Kukja Gallery, which opened in Seoul in 1982, and Emma Sun, senior director at Lehman Morpin, one of the increasing number of galleries from the US and Europe to have opened a space in the Korean capital. And in this episode's Work of the Week, Kabir talks to the creative director at the fashion brand Lueve, Jonathan Anderson, about the winner of the Lueve Foundation Craft Prize, Daya Jung's A Time of Sincerity, a horsehair basket that's on view as part of the prize exhibition at the Seoul Museum of Craft Art. Before all that, why not try a digital subscription to the art newspaper? The price for the first three months is £1, $1 or €1, depending on where you live, and then it's £10, $10 and €10 per quarter afterwards. You get full access to the website and the app for iOS and Android, plus the e-paper archive of the newspaper and fair dailies. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and the promo code is TRIAL, all in capital letters. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now. Now, the arrival of the Freeze Art Fair in Seoul confirms the city's rise to being a key Asian centre for the global art market. And one of the reasons for Seoul's growing importance is that it's long had a thriving art scene. I spoke to Jiyun Lee, an art historian and one of the most prominent curators of contemporary art in Korea. She's co-curated elements of biennials in Busan in Korea in 2006, Liverpool in the UK in 2008 and the Venice Biennale in 2009. She was a director of a branch of MMCA, the National Modern and Contemporary Art Museum in Seoul and is also the founder of an independent curatorial agency called SUM. I spoke to her about the Korean contemporary scene ahead of Freeze's arrival in the city. June, I wanted to begin by talking about the Korean scene because one of the reasons we're talking is because Freeze is coming to Seoul and there's a very big focus on Western galleries and the Western influx, if you like, into the Korean art scene. But actually the, the Korean scene is, is a very mature scene. It's several generations of contemporary artists and institutions. Can you tell me a bit about the Korean scene and, if you like, the kind of key aspects of the scene that make it so distinctive? Yes. As you said, it was, I think, pretty mature market, in particular last 15 years. It was pretty interestingly, I mean, developed. Like, I mean, Western important galleries appearance in last, you know, three to five years. Uh, it's not just a coincidence they start to come in a day because uh, surprisingly, the Korean collectors, their development and their collection uh, establishment, it's not just in last five years emergence 
Because what I have surprised when I come back to Korea, you know, as a curator and as a contemporary art museum director for the MMCA, Seoul director, I was really surprised. There are many interesting, sophisticated collectors. They were not really showing off their collections. Very, very modest, but they were very knowledgeable and they were very much aware of, I mean, contemporary artists. So in that sense, I think it was really, I mean, right time. Uh, the Western galleries understood the importance of Korean market. Uh, maybe that's why they... Uh, start to open their galleries finally, I mean, in Korea. Did those collectors that you're talking about collect both Korean and international art, or were they more focused on one or the other? Uh, the collectors, what I mentioned, it's not only for the Korean art, for the international art works as well. Maybe that's why, I mean, the international art galleries start to come to Korea in last five years, but particularly in last two, three years, more galleries that may start to come. I wanted to also explore the role of the historic scenes because there have been artistic communities in Seoul and beyond for many decades. Can you say something about those historic communities and how central they are to the scene now and how much influence they have, if you like? Yeah, I think contemporary art communities, I mean, especially, I mean, start to get engaged since 1993, if I may say, mm. because... Korea started to come to Venice Biennial in 1993 in the Venice Biennial as the first Korean pavilion. And then the Gwangju Biennial opens in 1995 in Korea. So that is, I mean, very important years. I mean, Korean contemporary artist scene start to engage with international art scene. Because as you know that, I mean, uh, Korea held Olympic Games 1988. So since then, Korean globalization start to being held. And then normal Korean people start to be able to travel to foreign country since 1989 only. You'll be very surprised. Korean people cannot travel to a foreign country mm. without any permission. It was impossible. So after the Olympic Games, people only be able to travel to foreign country. I mean, to, for the you know, European tour and European museum tours only be possible after 1989. So I think that was a really interesting moment to see that even artists can travel to other countries for foreign studies. So I think contemporary scenes, we can say that it's only start to get engaged finally, properly, I mean, after 1990s. That's really interesting. I hadn't realised until I was reading around the soul scene that... In 1993, the Whitney Biennial came to Seoul, and this was part of Nam June Pike's initiative. Can you say something about that, and how important was that? I think Nam June Pike, as a, one of the important Korean artists, and has really made a great help for Korean art to oversee as well, because the Gwangju Biennial held for the first time in 1995. Uh, Namjoon Pike helped for the Daejeon Expo 1994. At that time, he helped 
one of the expo in 1994. So he really, I mean, started to bring international art specialists to Korea. And then also, I mean, bring this Whitney Biennial to Korea in 1993. So he really, I mean, started to bring all the museum, you know, the MoMA director and Whitney Biennial directors, all these people to Korea, start to show the Korean artists. And then, I mean, start to open up these I mean, doors. I actually wrote my thesis, The Impact of Globalization, with a Julian Salabras, mm. I mean, professor at Kotold Art Institute, about my PhD thesis. So actually, I researched in that area. So, I mean, Nam Jun Pak, I mean, did a great, great impact and the influence on that area and Lies, I mean, work. That's why in 1995, when the Gwangju Biennial opens, at that time, it was really important uh, year. At that year, the uh, audiences were more than one million people visited the Gwangju Biennial. And also government actually spent one million US dollar budget to make that Gwangju Biennial possible. Right. And is that really important in the state support for contemporary art in the sense that it has been seen as a leading way to promote Korea to the world, if you like? Contemporary art's at the heart of that. I think compared to the other Asian countries, I think Korea was a biggest government and state to support in contemporary art supporting country. Particularly, I mean, for two biennials, one for the Gwangju Biennial and second for the Busan Biennial. These two biennials, one in 1995 for the Busan Biennale, I mean, started in 1998. Of course, Gwangju had a much bigger budget and Busan has a little bit lesser budget. But these two biennials receive a big budget from the government. Uh, Busan, actually from the Busan city, but, I mean, these two biennials really, I mean, start to play a very important roles for the international art scene, but at the same time, really fostering uh, the Korean contemporary artists to producing the new commission work and really becoming a platform to engage with international artists and curators and to understand the language of contemporary art practices. And you worked on the Busan Biennial in 2006, I believe. Can you tell me something about what it had established by that time in terms of the balance between Korean and international artists? I think year 2006 was very interesting year. We worked not only in the Busan City Art Museum. Our site was in the Bay 3000 square meter big warehouse you know, making a contemporary art exhibition in a beautiful museum is a one thing, but making a big exhibition in a big warehouse is another great challenge. Indeed. I mean, all curators were really amazing because Tobias Berger, now, I mean, uh, he's running the great, I mean, museum in Hong Kong. You know, everybody, I mean, Claire Stabler, I mean, he was working at the Ballet de Tokyo, it was really, I mean, active curators, six curators working together, making this gigantic warehouse into a contemporary venue with a tight budget, but we produced a fantastic, very experimental exhibition. 
everybody really remembered that exhibition. Almost many works were all commissioned and new production. I think it was a really interesting moment. It's not like big budget exhibition making like now, because nowadays, I mean, without any big gallery support with a big budget, it's almost impossible to, you know, making a big exhibition. But at that time, with a great effort of the curators as a producer, with a great artist, amazing effort to producing together with the curators, it was an amazing moment. Is it significant that the two sort of biggest biennales, if you like, in Guangzhou and Busan, were outside of Seoul, and so therefore artist communities developed not just in the capital? Was that significant? I think even though those I mean, two biennials held in those two cities, but artists always I mean, come back to Seoul. And then those I mean, artists did uh, lots of lectures and talks in the uh, National Contemporary Art Museum. Also, we had the Media Art Biennale in Metropolitan City Art Museum at the time. That's why even though it was held in other two cities, we are all connected in Seoul as well. Of course, the two other cities, but I think Seoul was one of the also very important mecca. Can you say something about the contemporary scene today in Seoul in terms of artistic communities? Of course, it's a vast city. It's 25 million people. So do you have multiple art communities or is it the central community located in a particular area? I think compared to 10 years ago, I think at that time, artistic communities were much more experimental and active in artistic communities. But unfortunately, at the moment, it was much more commercially driven atmosphere, I must admit and I must say. Because nowadays, art market really opens But it's not only in Korea, it's really everywhere in other cities as well. Because it's not Biennale driven, it's not really art residency and uh, museum driven atmosphere. It's much more gallery driven, the art fair driven. That sort of atmosphere is happening in Korea now too. That's why many of important galleries is happening in the Samcheongdong nearby MMCA and the Gukje Gallery and the Hyundai Gallery and that area, the Samcheongdong and then Hannamdong. That's where another important Western gallery is residing, Pace Gallery and the Ropa Gallery and those gallery area. Mm-hmm. another like South Kensington, if we say, I mean, that sort of area. Those are right. three galleries uh, areas are really I mean, driven for the contemporary art scenes, leading places. And so do you have concerns then about Freeze's arrival? And if you're already concerned about the sort of commercial impact on the contemporary scene, how do you greet Freeze's arrival? Well, I mean, some of Korean local galleries are a little bit, I mean, showing their concerns. Well, if these international galleries' arrival maybe kill the Korean market, 
and many of collectors will maybe buy only international artists. Maybe they will sell the Korean artist. They will not buy Korean art because it's not. Going to have any investment value and so on. So many people actually show a lot of worries and concerns. But in my opinion, I think it can be a very positive challenge because when the you know movie market opens, at that time there were many many demonstrations from the movie sectors, and they say that you must have a certain quota. Uh, have to be addressed against the Korean films. You must give a certain the margin for the Korean films. There are many many policies in you know, rates provided for the Korean films to protect. I mean, for the Korean film markets and so on. But in the end, Korean film became much more. I think competitive. They really made a great effort. To become much more interesting, they really are trying to make a better stories, and I think maybe that's one of the reason Korean film became much more interesting now, and maybe now they you know got the best awards in many Cannes and the Academy Awards right now. That's why I think I mean maybe they feel a little bit scared and a bit worried now, but. I think I mean it can bring a certain open competition, and I think Korean young artists can see the global trend right away. The Korean young artists can see what's going on out there. They can really compete with the young artists, and I think we can have another chance for the Korean artists to oversee as well. And then some great Western dealers can find the great Korean artist talent as well. So I rather uh, see it can be a great opportunities in the long term based. One of the interesting things is that this September there was an exhibition at LACMA in Los Angeles about modern Korean art. There's also a show in which the Guggenheim and MMCA are collaborating, looking at avant-garde art of the 60s and 70s. Do you feel optimistic about the way that not just Korea as a as a scene, but also Korean art? In the modern and contemporary period, will be understood more widely now. Do you feel quite optimistic about its increasing relevance and increasing understanding of it globally? Yes, I really think this was really right timing, and it's really important to have that exhibition right now because 1960s and 70s, this avant-garde artist、uh, movement was very, very important. But in last, I mean, fifty years, unfortunately, the Gutai movement have been really internationally addressed in many museums, internationally.、Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this nineteen sixties and seventies Korean modern art, particularly for the Tansekwa, this kind of paintings has been addressed. I mean, through some of the galleries. But this sixties and seventies performance-based and experimental performance-based artworks has not been properly revisited and then researched. That's why I think MMCA has really intensive research materials and great scholars、uh, as curators, and their collaboration with LACMA and Guggenheim. 
in this kind of proper collaboration, and they have been researching more than three years. But because of COVID, I mean, more I mean, research period has been added. So right. this kind of I mean, exhibition together can give in depth the background and knowledge to provide the platform, giving a platform to understand the Korean art now more. Because, I mean, understand the Korean contemporary art, it's a bit difficult, I mean, without understanding of this kind of, I mean, in-depth process of this avant-garde, the whole process in last 30, 40 years. That's why I'm very, very pleased to see this kind of important historical exhibition finally held in this important international institution finally now. Then under the basis of these uh, more, I mean, interesting contemporary artist works can be shown more and more after. Well, ji thank you so much for talking to me today. <laughs> You're welcome. The exhibition I mentioned at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, The Space Between, the Modern in Korean Art, runs from the 11th of September to the 19th of February next year. As yet, there are no confirmed dates for the exhibition The Avant-Garde, Experimental Art in South Korea in the 1960s and 1970s at MMCA or the Guggenheim. Keep an eye on the gallery's websites for details. Coming up, we hear from Kukje Gallery and Lehman Morpin about the gallery scene in Seoul, and Jonathan Anderson tells us about the winner of the Lueve Foundation Craft Prize. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The Orlando Museum of Art, or OMA, has fired the institution's director and chief executive, Aaron de Groft. The sacking follows a scandal surrounding a Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition at the museum that ended abruptly on the 24th of June, when the FBI raided it and seized 25 paintings amid questions about their authenticity. The chair of the OMA's board of trustees, Cynthia Brumbach, said that the board was concerned about several issues relating to the exhibition, including inappropriate email correspondence sent to academia concerning the authentication of its works. An official process to address these matters has been launched. Concerns about the authenticity of the purported Basquiat works were first made public in a New York Times article in February. At the time, de Groff told the newspaper, quote, my reputation is at stake as well, and I have absolutely no doubt these are Basquiat's. Daniel Weiss, President and Chief Executive of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, has announced that he'll step down in June 2023. Weiss was appointed President in 2015 and Chief Executive in 2017 and guided the Met through several major challenges during his tenure, including balancing the museum's $310 million operating budget, raising more than $1.5 billion in private support, and overseeing, among other projects, the $40 million renovation of the ancient Near Eastern and Cypriot galleries and the $500 million refurbishment of the modern wing. Weiss also served as the interim director of the Met between the departure of its former director, Thomas Campbell, in 2017 and the appointment of the current director, Max Holline, in 2018. He also helped navigate the controversy surrounding donations from the Sackler family and the ultimate removal of the Sackler name from seven galleries of the museum in 2021. In a statement, Weiss said that he has every confidence that the museum is on a path to a strong future. 
TEFAF Maastricht was evacuated on Tuesday after several men, at least one of whom was reportedly armed, attempted to rob a jewellery stand. Images circulating on social media showed two vitrines were damaged on the stand of the London dealer Symbolic and Chase, and some jewellery was taken. In a video, one man was seen smashing a glass cabinet with a mallet, while others warded off other dealers and visitors. One appeared to be holding a gun. TEFAF said that the fair was evacuated, the Dutch police were on site within minutes, and nobody was injured during the incident. Limburg police said that two men, a 22-year-old and a 26-year-old man, both from Belgium, were arrested shortly after the robbery. You can read more about all these stories on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Beginning on the 13th of July, Christie's New York presents the chance to view July's Contemporary Art Online series in person. Engage with works by defining artists such as Andy Warhol, Keith Haring and David Hockney. Discover examples by Ernie Barnes, Shabalala Self, Shara Hughes and Cause that bring new momentum to the market. As the summer continues, explore Christie's rotating exhibitions featuring the great indoors, dream big and more from private sales. Find out more at Christie's Welcome back. Now, Freeze's arrival in Seoul follows a significant increase in international galleries setting up outposts in the city, where they've joined a long-established gallery scene. Our associate editor, Kabir Jalla, is in Seoul and has spoken to representatives of two galleries. A bit later, we'll hear from Emma Sun, senior director at Lehman Morpin, the US gallery that first opened a space in the Korean capital in 2017 and in March opened a new gallery in the Hanamdong district. But first, Kabir spoke to Juri Kwan, deputy director at the Kukji Gallery. A key player in Seoul's art scene since 1982. Hi, Jory. Thanks so much for joining me. So, you're in Korea right now in the Seoul Gallery Kukje, which was established in 1982. And uh, to my mind, it's probably the most internationally recognized Korean gallery. So, you represent, I'd say, a pretty even split between international and Korean artists, and the international artists that you do represent are some really big blue-chip artists. You represent Louise Bourgeois, Jenny Holzer, Anish Kapoor. At the same time, the gallery also represents some of the biggest names in contemporary Korean art, like Hege Yang and Sun Suk Moon. And so back when you started the gallery and in those first, you know, 15 years, who were the collectors? What was the collecting scene like? Because obviously I know with, um, you know, Korea's unique history, there wasn't probably a lot of generational wealth that had developed by the 1980s. So who was snapping up contemporary art then to justify opening a contemporary art gallery? So the individuals who have been collecting traditionally aren't too different from the pool of collectors that we have in Korea now. So they're mostly the the major kind of businessmen. And um, actually, Korea has quite a bit of uh, private museums that, you know, come from these private collections. And well, I mean, even though this is on an incomparably large scale, the Liam Museum of Art by Samsung is just one example of how impressive these collections can get. And Back in the 1980s, uh, collecting was more focused on antiquities 
So, you know, traditional Korean ceramics, such as the, the moon jars, um, and also the kind of traditional shan shui, also known as, you know, kind of the traditional Korean and Chinese landscape paintings. That was more in trend. However, from the 1980s, 90s-ish, the trend became a lot more contemporary as these uh, big name artists started, you know, coming into the Korean art scene. In the 1980s and, and 90s, we felt that it was imperative to educate the local audience on art and its importance as the awareness, interest, and the infrastructure for arts and culture was uh, relatively lacking. And uh, so at, at Cook J Gallery, we've been holding weekly academy events for the clients at the gallery and, uh, and continue to do so even today. And also in terms of the gallery's programming, um, we used to be more focused on the big names um, like Alexander Calder and, and Louise Bourgeois and Frank Stella and so on. Now that our, our audience has you know, fostered a keen eye and cultivated you know, their kind of individual tastes, which means that they are ready to explore uh, contemporary art. Um, we've been focusing more on the younger, more up-and-coming artists and also more international contemporary artists. So uh, recently we held shows with, um, for example, Elm Green and Draxet, Michael Jew, Jenny Holzer is another big name. And so now we have about uh, 50 artists on our roster and uh, we're representing a, a wide range of artists and, and estates ranging from Yi Young-kuk, who is um, a pioneering Korean abstractionist who was born in 1916, to uh, Korakrit, Aaron Nan chai who is a young-Thai multimedia artist. So it's really a range. And now, you know, fast-forwarding to the modern day when Seoul is at this sort of um, precipice point, you know, massive art market ascendancy, how have collecting habits shifted in the past 40 years? What kind of trends are we seeing? You know, are collectors now skewing younger? Are they interested in different mediums? You know. Yes, we have seen a recent rise of younger generations of collectors, collectors ranging from their 20s even to their 40s. And this is actually a very recent phenomenon in Korea, which can be attributed to the pandemic. Because borders closed down due to the pandemic, the wealthier class started to do what we generally call in Korea revenge spending. Right. And um, so first, that basic trend was generally seen with luxury brands, but then art, in a sense, became the next level. So because we participate in about four to five domestic art fairs per year, we saw a huge spike of younger collectors who really want to to get a roll on with their with their collections and even though the general price range of what these younger collectors buy tend to be slightly on the smaller scale um, as compared to existing collectors when you you know sum them up it does account for a significant portion of our sales Something that I hear from people who are ingrained in the Korean art world is that Korean collectors, especially young collectors, they're more interested in Western and international art, actually, than they are in buying Korean contemporary art. I mean, would you say that this is a fair point or would you butt against it? I would butt against it because it's really a range. We have collectors who are looking for you know, young Korean artists. We have collectors looking for edition pieces mm. by our Tan Masters like Park Sebo and Ha Jong Hyun. 
and they get sold out very quickly. And also, then we have collectors who are looking for Jenny Holzer, Kapoor, Atoniel. So it's really a range, and you know, it just depends on their taste and and what they feel like is a good investment. Could you pinpoint the international works that really succeed in Korea? You know, if an international gallery is coming to a fair in Korea, as obviously a hundred and eighteen will very soon. What would you suggest you bring? Is there something that you can kind of sense Korean buyers really like, and that a gallery would sell well if they brought to the fair? I think Korean collectors are into works that have character, so it shows that artist's kind of signature. I guess you know whether it be motif or technique or material, even for example with Atoniel, it's the glass beads. With Op, it's the Very kind of abstract figures. With Ugo Rondononi, it's there's a range, but for example, with the color mountains, they're very you know characteristic and signature to the artist. So whatever is very kind of representational and also what can be you know immediately recognized as a work by that artist, I think the Korean collectors are more inclined to prefer. So I think the most germane question that everyone's sort of asking, we're certainly asking right now, is free Seoul raise its head, is why now? Why has Seoul and South Korea become such a buzzword in the art world and in the art market? You know, why is a uh, Korea star so ascendant? So how long do you think it's been um, in the works that Korea would become this real power player? On the not even the East Asian market scene, you know the global market scene, and why do you think it's now that Korea is really about to take its place on the global stage as an art market hub? I think the biggest attribute of the Korean art scene and what is appealing for both um, regional and and international art professionals uh, worldwide is the artists that we have in Korea. In the in the recent decade, Tansakwa. Has really uh, found its niche in the modern and contemporary art history, and artists like Hagu Yang, for example, um, they've been really just very active all over the globe. So people recognize, you know, what Korean art is and who the Korean artists are, which is a huge appeal. I feel like um, an art market cannot exist if it doesn't have its artists. And another factor is, and this is tying back to my comment with regards to the younger generations of, of collectors, I feel like no other region in this world has seen such a conspicuous rise of a whole new generation of younger collectors in recent years. Well, more so than Korea, at least. And this provides a prospect and also a future within the art market. That a lot of international galleries, I feel like, are going to want to explore, and not only explore, but also to develop and foster. So Kukche has participated in KIAF, the Korean International Art Fair, for many years now. Could you give our listeners a sense of the importance of KIAF in the Korean art world calendar, and also, you know, what you think Free Seoul coming in and partnering with KIAF? Is going to mean? Will the two sort of be sibling fairs, or do you sort of foresee some rivalry going on here? So, Kukje Gallery has been participating in Kiev since two thousand three, 
and the uh, key office actually launched in 2002. And it's one of the most important and longest running art fairs in Korea. Kiev has consistently supported contemporary art in Korea by focusing on emerging talent and establishing a reputation as one of Asia's leading um, art fairs. And while uh, Kukjae participates in major international art fairs around the world, such as Art Basel and Fries, we've always shown the dedication to supporting domestic fairs, and we take much into care and consideration when preparing for them. And Kiev is definitely one of our most important events on the art fair calendar for us, since it's the largest and the most important fair in our home ground. And um, our founder, Hyun Suk Lee, was the 14th president of the Galleries Association of Korea, which organizes Kiev. And, uh, you know, having that history makes our connection to the fair a lot more meaningful. So are you going to have to choose between Kiev and Free Seoul this year? Are you going to show at both fairs or are you going to only choose one? We're one of the few galleries that's doing both fairs. So another question that people are obviously going to be asking themselves is, you know, what are the benefits, but also the potential downsides of this new influx of attention and money from the West that I think Free Seoul pretty accurately represents? Because I think when you think of Seoul, it's also really important to think of what the biggest hub for the art market is in East Asia, which is Hong Kong, and continues to be today, but at the moment is kind of seeing it start falling a little bit. And something that I always notice when I speak to a lot of Hong Kong artists, when I speak to people who have Hong Kong art spaces, not necessarily Hong Kong art dealers, but Hong Kong art spaces, is they say that to some extent all that huge amount of wealth from the West that came into Hong Kong over the last 20 years in the art market has actually not been amazing for the city's artists. It really privileges Western artists. It privileges Western galleries with spaces out there and it privileges Christie's and Sotheby's. But necessarily, I don't think that Hong Kong artists have benefited a huge amount. Obviously, as someone who is so ingrained in the soul scene, who is Korean, I'm sure you also want to, you know, preserve some sense of Koreanness as in the international wealth flows into the city. So how do we avoid Seoul, you know, necessarily becoming overtaken by the international art world? So as of now, because this is happening no matter what, we are more hopeful that the international attention on the Korean art market will further stimulate and enlarge its scale. And hopefully... This will bring further opportunities to the country's local artists. And as you already know, we have a very strong roster of, of local artists in Korea. And in turn, we, we do want the Western galleries to bring their, their pool of artists into the Korean market. And we want our Korean collectors to, to experience and, and see what the rest of the art world has to offer. And even though competition is of course, inevitable. That has always been the case. And, and we hope that it will, in the end, turn out to be a healthy and a mutually beneficial one. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Jury, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. So Emma, you're in Korea now, speaking from Lehman Morpin's gallery in Seoul, which you have directed since it was established in 2017. Now, 2017 doesn't seem like a huge amount of time ago, but the art scene in Seoul has really exploded in that time since. So I thought we'd first establish why did Lehman Morpin decide to open a career branch? And then also, what was the scene like in 2017 when you opened? 
The Lima Mopin has long kept its aim to present artists in new geographies and to diversify the local art markets. So opening of Lima Mopin Seoul was actually a natural result of this intent. Um, as the city, as you put it, has grown in prominence, both regionally and um, internationally. Korea has been very international with all the biennales in Gwangju and Busan, also in Seoul um, with the city media. But appearance of um, international galleries like Lima Mopin and, you know, Pace and Paraton um, has actually added a different layer to the city's art market. And it's, I think, helped boost the appearance, actually, and uh, prominence of the city and the nation internationally, I think. So how many Western galleries had branches in Seoul when Lehman Mopin set up? So I think it's only us and Pace and Paraton, I believe, at mm. the time, that had an actual space. So, you know, our new space is the progression of that expensive and ambitious programming we have organized since the launch. So, yeah, if you could tell me a little bit about your new space, because Lehman Mopin announced last year that it was opening up a new location in Seoul. So our new gallery space is double the size of our um, previous space so that it allows our artists to push the boundaries of um, their mediums. And for our team members, a bigger space allows us to diversify the types of um, exhibitions we mount and play with the scale, enabling the visitors to also engage with multiple aspects of an artist's practice Mm -hmm. in a way they weren't able to before. So when Lehman Morpin opened their sole gallery, they already had a Hong Kong branch. So I want to know, you know, why did you not just stop there? You already have a base in East Asia that you can then do the fairs with. So why did you then open up a sole branch? I think in terms of establishing a um, whole operation here in Seoul, I think the city's cultural importance, emerging collector base, and really a wonderful collaboration with the Korean museums and biennales may be the um, three main reasons mm-hmm. that we thought was important to actually have a space. And also, as you know, that we worked with a really important Korean artists from the very beginning, Libel and Doho So, and also we, we've represented So Seok. So that also played a lot of reasons for us to be here. Interesting. So Emma, if I was a Western gallerist and I said, hey, Emma, I want to open a space in Seoul, I want to know some of the um, pressure points and the hurdles that I should consider when I'm opening a Seoul space. What would you say to me? And, you know, what are the best ways to overcome these issues? So I think just one and, you know, only thing that really comes to my mind is a person, right person to help you set up everything and also operate on behalf of you. You know, it's international city, but at the same time, you really have to have someone based in Korea who knows the art scenes and, um, you know, who people in the art market trust and who can be a leader because it's not just about showing artist works. It's also about, you know, operating a business. So we really need someone who can... Um, speak both Korean and English so you can communicate and do the business. I think that's really essential. So again, I'm a Western gallerist looking for some advice to open up in Seoul. On a more positive note, 
What are some of the things that you would tell me are really good about Seoul, you know, from a perspective of ease of doing business, of taxes, you know, of this sort of scene? What is it on a sort of business level that you think is drawing galleries here? Because obviously, you know, there are great museums, there are great artists. A lot of cities have great museums and great artists. There is clearly a reason why people are really being attracted to Seoul. You know, it's the collectors. It is the sort of nitty gritty of it. So what is it about Seoul? I think it's all of that. Um, you know, we do have great museums city-wise and, you know, all regionally. There's also new state museums are opening up and have setting up great spaces. And also um, there are a growing number of young collector base, which is positive in that sense. Also, we have wonderful um, artists in Korea that you can look forward to, you know, working and presenting and finding out. But also what um, I think business-wise, what's attracting for collectors also is that the art is still tax-free here, except for the photographies. Photography, we do have 10% tax. And also I think the geography of Korea, it could become a hub like in Hong Kong. It's close to, you know, all the Asian countries China, Japan, Hong Kong. So you've participated in Kia for a few years. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what the fair is like, what kind of place it holds in the Korean art market. And then also what kind of effect you think the incoming free soul will have in this landscape? Kia is one of the oldest international fairs in Korea, which opened in 2002. So it has a long history and actually have a a great influence to the Korean galleries and collectors, I believe. Kiev has become an important fair, but although it's called international, you know, they didn't really have the big Western galleries involved. So I think a partnering with um, Freed Seoul and having it at the same space will actually sort of benefit each other, I think, Kiev and Freed Seoul. Because for collectors, they will have a chance to look at, you know, different types of galleries that an artist works that will be shown into different locations. So you don't think that there's any uh, sign of a rivalry between Kiaf and Freeze? So you think it's... I mean, I think from Korean galleries perspective, probably some would worry that, you know, it's going to be taken over by big Western galleries, but I think they embrace the fact that it will actually create a lot more positive energy for both Korean and international galleries. So you're taking part in Free Soul, but not Kiev. Could you explain to me why you chose to do Free Soul rather than Kiev this year? You know, we've already been involved in Freeze for London and LA, so it was kind of obvious for us to do it. We wanted, to, of course, to do both fairs, but with uh, limited human resources. And, um, you know, so it was unfortunate that um, we only had to take one. For what you're showing at Free Soul, I don't know if you can tell us anything about the stand that you'll be showing, but will most of the works be shipped in from Seoul or are you shipping in works from all overseas as well? We're shipping works from different parts of the world. 
And how have you found that? Because obviously shipping internationally has been a big issue in the last couple of months, you know, due to both the COVID pandemic and also the war in Ukraine has also made Russian airspace kind of difficult to fly over for South Korea. That's a big issue because obviously from Europe and also in North America, you do often have to fly over Russian airspace. So how have you guys been managing, you know, this sort of shipping situation? We're trying to be very smart when we do international shipping and try to select works from like, you know, 10 different countries. We'll focus on maybe three different countries to do it. And also with the time limitation, it, it sometimes it takes um, a lot longer and due to unexpected cancellations and, you know, whatnot. So we're, we're very mindful of that also. And most of the fares, you, when you don't have advanced inventories, then you just have to work with air freight. Thank you so much for your insights, Emma. Thank you for inviting me. Free Seoul will take place at the COEX Centre from the 2nd to the 5th of September. You can read more about the Seoul Gallery scene on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. It was announced last night that the winner of the Lueve Foundation Craft Prize is Dea Jung's A Time of Sincerity, a horsehair basket referencing the history of Korean craft. Kabir spoke to Lueve's creative director, Jonathan Anderson, about the work, which is now on view in the prize exhibition at the Seoul Museum of Craft Art. So before we talk about the work, could you tell us a little bit about the Lueve Craft Prize and why you set it up? Yeah, I joined Lueve nearly seven years ago. And when I joined Lueve, they had a, a foundation which was only awarding to poetry in the Spanish language. And I wanted to try and come up with something which in which related to myself and the brand so that I could kind of, in a weird way, work a way into the brand. Especially, I'm originally from Ireland. The brand is owned by a French collaborative and ultimately is based in Spain. And this was an entrance in to me. I've always felt like there was a need, I think, globally for a craft prize that was able to kind of be used as a platform to really promote individuals. And, and that is why I set up the prize for Lueve. So you host a prize every year in a different city and this year it's Seoul which is obviously great because Korea has a huge legacy of craft and uh, this year you're hosting it in the Seoul Museum of Craft Art which opened last year. Yeah no it's been fantastic to be able to have it here because um, I think what's amazing about Korea is that they have this sort of like inherent thing to kind of protect craft um, culturally you know, there is esteem for craft, I think. I think people really respect it. And and for me, it was just uh, important to come here because I think, you know, if you look at ceramics, for example, or furniture, you know, some of the most modern thinkers of our time. So let's discuss this work. So it's a 30 centimetre tall basket made entirely from horsehair. Is that right? Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about how it's made? When I first saw this piece, I only had sort in images. I'd seen work in uh, Salone and different places, but I'd never seen this one. And what is amazing is it's completely woven and it's done out of a certain type of horse hair in which there's nearly like a translucency to the hair. So it nearly can look ambery in colour. At the same time, it can look like wire. It could look like glass. 
But what is so magical about this piece is as you walk by it, it slightly moves, catching the light. And at the same time, it casts these amazing shadows onto the surface it sits on. And I mean, the piece itself is quite a technical feat, isn't it? Because obviously, when I say something crafted out of hair, it's difficult to understand how it stands up. But Horsa has this wonderful tensile quality to it. And I think that really shows up in the work. Yeah, and there's an incredible, like, you, you get the flexibility. And at the same time, this wiriness that kind of like, it's got like a bit of a nervousness to it in terms of a material. Mm. And incredibly strong as well. I understand that the work also takes a very long time to make, that the artist is very particular about the individual strands of hair that come and then they are threaded around a needle. How long does it take to create this work? And this is what we were kind of, we were trying to guesstimate with her and we were talking about it in the jury. Some of them can take up to two to three to four to five days, depending on the size of structure. Um, I was actually, I'm actually sitting in my hotel room. I was just Googling other works that she had done where they're white. I think it depends on the intricacy of the pattern, ultimately. Some of them become more dense and some are kind of uh, slightly more opened in like kind of patterns, as you saw. So the practice of horsehair weaving is actually quite ancient to Korea and China as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how the work is sort of connecting to the past, but also maybe taking it in a sort of modern direction as well? Yeah, you know, obviously, for example, in Korea, they use it in hat making for men's hats. And they're these very kind of like little kind of little top hats, nearly, ultimately. And they have like a brim on them. And what I think is interesting is that she has taken this technique and in a weird way, turning it into a vessel form, fundamentally, is quite interesting and actually can nearly deconstructing the male hat somehow. There's something that I find incredibly fascinating with this because I think it brings it into this sort of air of nearly like an act of poetry somehow. Is that something you see very often with entrance to the craft prize, that there's a desire to connect to a tradition that is maybe pre-modern and rooted very heavily in the past, but then is sort of saying something about modern society as well? Yeah, no, we've had over the last five years a lot of examples of using a kind of ancient technique and then kind of propelling it into the future. But what I like is when you have this idea of skill or a technique and you are using the fundamentals, but you are changing the form in a way that it evokes a new type of dialogue. It is a kind of like a quiet form of being radical, ultimately. You're a fashion designer. Are we going to be seeing horse on runways uh, next season? <laughs> I don't know. I think the, the only time that we use horse hair in fashion is um, in a suit, in the canvases of a suit. But no, I don't know. I think it seems incredibly time-consuming. <laughs> it's called weft, isn't it? The weft, yeah. Uh, no, yes. Yeah, no, the idea of a horsehair basket or vessel also interests me because it's sort of also playing with um, the degree of practical application you can have for this object. It doesn't really seem hugely apparent to me why you would want to have a basket made of horsehair. Do you think that this work is also sort of intentionally blurring um, any distinctions between craft and art object as a viewer onto it, I feel like there is something about this actually kind of like removing function, ultimately, and kind of by titling it, and then at the same time producing 
something which is a container that ultimately will not contain, I think is very important in this moment because I think it is something that evokes us to kind of look at the work in a reactionary way. What has been interesting is watching people look at it and as they're near it and they're kind of breathing, you see the baskets move slightly. It's quite an interesting kind of process to watch. And at the same time, I think it does, in a weird way, kind of go into this idea of abstraction, ultimately. I mean, that distinction that I just brought up about craft and art object, is that something that you even think is useful? I mean, speaking as a designer of fashion, but obviously, you know, that is also a form of craft and also some would argue a form of art. Do you think that upholding those sort of boundaries is at all useful? What can we learn from both considering craft and art as separate and then also considering them as one whole? Well, you know, I think even in my own job, I always find that sometimes the things that are perceived as non-functional, I think allow us to progress things, you know. What fascinates me about, for example, this work in particular, or in art or craft in general, what I like is this idea, as a designer, I think my job is ultimately to look to the past. I have to reinvent the trouser or reinvent the concept of the clothing or the garment itself. And I feel like by looking to the past and historically kind of reconfiguring it and rebuilding it and not being precious with this idea of ownership. I always feel that what is nice is this idea within craft is that the technique exists. You don't own the technique, you have to master it. Uh, and I think this is what I learn from art and from craft as I look to it as a, as a kind of sounding board because I feel that, you know, it is about reinventing the way that we look at things and sometimes to better or to change the meaning of that method. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. And listeners, if you see a horsehair appear in Jonathan's next collections, you know why. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> no, thank you so much. The Lueve Foundation Craft Prize is at the Seoul Museum of Craft Art until the 31st of July. And that's it for this episode and indeed for this season. We'll be back in September and then with you every week until the holidays in December. Our sister podcast, A Brush With, is back with a new series of four episodes on the 3rd of August. And you can find that and the back catalogue of more than 40 conversations with the world's leading artists wherever you're listening now. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Jiyun, Kabir, Jory, Emma and Jonathan. And thank you for listening. We'll see you in September. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.